This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas and educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Since the death of Chairman Mao in 1976, China has experienced a reform and opening period. In education, this has meant a change from an egalitarian to an elite system. Examinations emerged as the primary way of sorting students. Those who did well on various examinations rose to the next level, working their way up to higher education. This system, combining credentialism, competition, and Confucian traditions, has had profound consequences, including a rise in inequality and a growing divide between urban and rural communities. My guest today, Edward Vickers, has a new co-written book called Education and Society in Post-Mao China, detailing the past 40 years in educational development. This book is the first monograph written in English to offer a comprehensive analysis of China's educational development since the death of Chairman Mao. Edward Vickers is a professor in the Department of Education at Kyushu University. He specializes in education and history in East Asia. Edward Vickers, welcome to Fresh Ed. Hi. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So your new book looks at educational development in China since the death of Mao in 1976. So why are these past 40 years called the reform and opening period? Because that's what the Chinese call them. Uh, I mean, mean? I, I mean... Well, the reform and opening period effectively, implicitly means um, uh, or it signifies the break with the Mao era. Uh, originally, that was what it was meant to signify. So it, signif- it means a break with the sort of extreme egalitarian policies uh, of the Cultural Revolution era, 1966 to 1976. Um, uh, during which education was a particular focus of official policy. So education uh, was um, uh, a sort of central tool for the regime during that latter part of Mao's um, era, a central tool in in sort of attempting to create an ultra-egalitarian society in China. So reform and opening signifies the radical break with that prioritization of egalitarianism uh, and a move towards, um, actually a very rapid move towards a much more elitist and competitive um, model of uh, education. So uh, from 1978, I should say, rather than 1976. Right, so it took two years before yeah. things started kicking in. Yeah. And so what were some of these educational reforms? So if education was seen in the Mao period as being one of the main policies towards egalitarianism. Yeah. What was the main break well, what, and how did it change? Well, what, um, uh, what happened during the Cultural Revolution was that, um, uh, well, for a start, uh, university entrance exams were abolished. Uh, higher education was, was uh, radically reformed in ways that we won't go into. <laughs> um, uh, and so, uh, in fact, before the formal Um, announcement of reform and opening as an economic policy in 1977 the move was made to restore um, 
the competitive college entrance examination system, the GAOCAL um, moves were also made to reinstate uh, and expand um, elite key schools, um, particularly at high school level, but in effect at every level of the education system. And these are schools which uh, receive sort of special funding from the government, more funding than normal schools. Uh, and so uh, basically the sort of mirror opposite of what had gone on during the Cultural Revolution, um, a highly elitist, highly selective model of education was reinstated from 1977, effectively. And why? Why was, why was there an, a desire by the, the party or the policymakers to have this break from hmm. equality to, or egalitarianism to this elite model that you, you've just described? Well, um, they would say <laughs> that this is because uh, that model is um, more effective in, uh, uh, in, in a context of limited resources for educational development. You know, this, is, this, this highly selective approach is necessary to rapidly um, uh, foster the talent that a country like China needed to drive forward its um, economic development and technological uh, development. Uh, and so that was the sort of rationale that was put forward. And in fact, the model that was cited, or one model that was often cited by leaders at the time, Deng Xiaoping in particular, was Meiji Japan, um, which had, had a, a similarly sort of elitist approach to educational development so, in the late so 19th century. So he was pointing to Meiji Japan as, a, as an example that China should try and... Well, he, yes. I mean, not, not specifically in the area of education, but more broadly in the area of development. And economic development. Yeah. And, right. Part of the context for that also being uh, the fact that at the time that reform and opening began, Japan's um, economic record seemed uh, sort of you know, world-beating. This was the era of Japan as number one. So I think Chinese leaders were sort of looking across at Japan and thinking, well, you know, what did they do right? But that's a mindset that goes back a long way in modern China. Right. Uh, sort of looking to Japan. But uh, yes, in terms of the reasons why they went for this sort of highly selective, highly competitive model, I think also at a more sort of mundane and personal level, the leaders who came into power in the late 1970s were the people who'd been basically victimized during the Cultural Revolution. They'd been at the, uh, at the hard end of these uh, policies uh, that were ostensibly aimed at um, uh, transforming China into a sort of radically socialist, egalitarian society. Uh, and um, what this did, and, and there's a very good book on this, in fact, by Suzanne Pepper, um, uh, radicalism and um, educational reform in 20th century China. Uh, and, and she argues there that um, the leadership that came in after the Cultural Revolution was basically, um, uh, had basically been reinforced through its experiences during the Cultural Revolution in quite traditional beliefs, quite traditional Chinese beliefs in uh, the importance of selection and the importance of quality fundamentally in 
uh, education, that the job of an education system is effectively, or its, its sort of overriding purpose is to select talent of the highest quality for the service of the state. And I think that's been a, uh, uh, remains a dominant theme in education policy in China well, down to the present. So did these reforms in, in the late 1970s, did they work? Did they, I mean, create this elite system that could foster growth? Uh, well, whether it was responsible for fostering growth or not is a question that I'm not entirely qualified to answer. Uh, but you'd have to say, I mean, looking at the, some of the students who come out of China's top universities or uh, these elite high schools, that, that yes, I mean, if you, if you um, concentrate resources in the way the Chinese regime has done since the late 1970s, then you know, the students who come out of these elite schools are you know, going to be um, highly impressive uh, academically in many cases. And um, uh, this, is, this is what we see in, in China. But um, the question that needs to be asked, I think, is, is what's the price that's paid for that? So what is the price? What, so what, what happened to those who weren't selected to get into these elite schools? Well, yeah, I mean, well, for, for a start, um, resources were, and, and, and again, this is something that Suzanne Pepper in her book published in the 1990s discusses, resources were, were, um, active, were, were consciously diverted from education in rural areas to education, to, to fund these key schools, or, or rather um, spending on education in rural areas was, um, was cut uh, because the government in the early reform era didn't want large numbers of um, uh, middle school, high school graduates from rural areas um, receiving an education that would encourage them to aspire to um, jobs that didn't exist or um, uh, they basically uh, give them aspirations beyond their station. Um, so th there's, an a there's a sort of element of social control uh, underlying that elitism in the education system from the early reform period. Um, and, and part of the background to that is that is the nature of the economic reforms uh, at that time, which were largely focused on rural areas rather than urban areas. So during the early reform period, the urban economy remained largely unreformed. So state socialism continued, by and large, in the urban economy right through the 1980s, whereas in the rural economy, there was much more opportunity for uh, free enterprise of various kinds. Um, but in education, despite the fact that um, sort of the, the, the urban economy wasn't offering opportunities for sort of entrepreneurial um, capitalism uh, to such an extent in the 1980s, the elitism within the education system was um, uh, creating a situation whereby uh, from the 1990s um, opportunity was um, uh, sort of radically divergent between different classes in Chinese society. 
So from the 1990s in particular, inequality in urban society sort of really takes off. So is this where, so this inequality that kind of grows out of this system of elitism and the focus on the urban areas just in, instead of the rural areas, did, is this where the, the student movement that kind of resulted in the, the, the well, late 80s, exactly, did yes. that come out of that? that well, that, that largely springs out of a sort of mismatch between the direction of educational reform and economic reform, uh, I think. Um, so you have this very, very elitist educational system in the 1980s, but most of the products of that system uh, coming out of uh, key high schools and, and universities uh, in urban China uh, were finding themselves by the late 1980s increasingly sort of economically disadvantaged vis-a-vis -vis, um, individuals with far less education uh, who, who, who were finding opportunities to make a, a, a fast buck. Um, and what happened in the 1990s was that, uh, and I think you know, this is part of the official response to the crisis in 1989, is that economic opportunities within the urban economy, with, within urban China, become far more aligned with uh, the, um, how can I put this, the um, sort of competitive nature of the education system. So educational success and economic success uh, go together from the 1990s far, far more directly than they did in the 1980s. Right. And, you know, one of the things that I always, I guess, have a hard time squaring is this connection between the kind of capitalist tendencies or economies that do exist in China, but with the socialism that also exists. And it sounds like, you know, in the education system, there is this... Um, you know, rise of competition, connecting positional good, you know, making education as a positional good for your, your exactly. station in life. So, you know, how did this sort of, um, you know, how is this kind of dilemma or paradox squared in, in China and in education? You mean between the, so, sort of socialist ideology and market the, the capitalism reality of education yeah. as, a as a positional good. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's been squared by basically emptying the term socialist of socialist meaning. So the, the term socialist is frequently heard to this day in China. But if you ask people to define what it means, well, it doesn't mean egalitarianism. It doesn't mean... Uh, a sort of generous or reliable welfare system. Uh, it means, um, what does it mean? Uh, <laughs> it means um, uh, the party's developmental agenda, essentially. Um, uh, the creation of a strong, economically prosperous China. Um, but without questioning too much how that prosperity is distributed within society. Um, it also means, and if you look at um, politics or um, civics textbooks uh, in China, it, it's clearly related to um, uh, what you might call a scientific outlook. So um, socialism equals science equals the inevitable 
sort of direction of China's development. Of progress. Of progress, exactly. Right. And, you know, what, is, this, is there an idea of meritocracy? Like, so if education, you know, the ability to, to do well on these high-stake tests and, and then get into mm. good universities, it, it, on, on the surface, it would seem like someone perhaps from a rural school who does well on certain tests could actually change their position in life. Oh, yeah. And yeah. that does happen. And that can happen, yeah. uh, although it's extremely rare. Um, but yes, that can happen. And meritocracy is absolutely central to the legitimation of the um, uh, Communist Party in so China this, in the reform era. Right. So the state policies and the state rhetoric was included that idea of meritocracy, even if it wasn't in practice happening. Yes, yes. Uh, and of course, that's, uh, that's a respect in which you know, the, the policies and sort of educational philosophy of reform era China sort of draws on a very long tradition of meritocratic rhetoric in relation to education in, in imperial China. Uh, I mean, this of course is, you know, stereotypically the, the Chinese approach to education. Um, so yes, that's one respect in which um, China, if you like, draws on its, con contemporary China draws on its Confucian traditions for the purpose of legitimating what is it, it, actually a highly um, elitist and inegalitarian um, education system. Do you, do you think that's an accurate reading of history of Confucius thought? Well, yes. I mean, <laughs> pre-modern or, or imperial China didn't really have much of an education system in the way that we would think of it. What it had was an examination system. Uh, so the state's involvement in education, largely, not entirely, but, but by and large consisted in setting examinations. Uh, and of course the purpose of those examinations was to select an elite for state service. Um, now of course the modern Chinese state's involvement in education is far more um, comprehensive. Uh, but nonetheless, that orientation, that idea that, that um, uh, rather than the state existing to serve the educational needs of the masses, the, the, <laughs> the educational, um, the, the products of the education system are there to serve the needs of the state, that orientation is still there, I think. And can you explain a little bit about the, you know, the contemporary examination system in China? Where should I start? Well, the big one that we know about, the it, it, Gao Kao, is that how you pronounce the it? The Gao Kao, the yeah. college entrance examination. Yeah, well, I mean, that was, of course, in many respects, post-revolutionary China, post-1949 China, borrowed educationally from the Soviet Union. But the Gao Kao was, was not a borrowing from the Soviet Union. The Gao Kao was effectively a, a reinstatement uh, of the uh, the Kurdu, the um, imperial um, uh, civil service examinations, uh, because what it did originally was to um, select the academically most able students from high schools, uh, put them into college or university, and then put them into uh, jobs in state entities during the Mao era and, and what, right through the 1980s uh, and early 1990s. 
So it was very, very in that respect, very similar to the, you know, the imperial civil service examinations because the products of these examinations were ultimately ending up in state service. Um, but um, at the same time, the Gaokao is just one of uh, a sort of series of public examinations that sort of winnow out the academically less able students and leave you with the cream of the crop. Uh, and in some ways, the key examination is not the Gaokao, uh, and this remains true today. The key examination is the Zhongkao, which is the examination that selects people for high schools, because that determines who gets to the elite high schools, um, which by and large are still state-funded schools, but funded to a far, far higher level than um, sort of run-of-the-mill high schools, uh, let alone vocational high schools. What, what about the more contemporary reforms in education? Like, since Xi Jinping has... Xi Jinping. Yeah, assumed power. So what sort of... Like, has education changed since the way you were describing it in the 90s, where it's, you know, it's become... Mm, well, I mean, changes predate Xi Jinping. I mean, serious, I think, what it's fair to call serious attempts to address problems of educational equality uh, really began in the early 2000s. Um, um, but with respect to Xi Jinping, I mean, there's been, there have been further attempts under Xi Jinping... I think that we, we are seeing further attempts uh, to address problems of educational inequality uh, at the same time as seeing a, an intensification of ideological um, uh, you know, d demand for ideological conformity within the education system right, right the way through, uh, intensification of patriotic education. Um, so those are, those are the two main things that are going on at the moment. Now, I mean, one example of an attempt to uh, tackle inequality is um, tighter zone regulations regarding the zoning of um, school districts. So rather than um, schools being able to sort of select competitively from a, a, a wide region, uh, junior high schools, for example, uh, forcing them to recruit from their local area um, in the way that happens in many countries. But as also happens in many countries, when you do that, one of the things that can happen is that uh, house prices shoot up near the, the best schools as those with money move in and buy up property so as to get their kids in that zone. And the problem with China is that inequality social inequality has um, developed to such an extent during the reform and opening period, partly as a consequence of the highly elitist education policies that have, have been there. Uh, it's, it's become so embedded that if you, you, you try and address it through, for example, zoning regulations in some big cities, um, the, the divide between rich and poor is such that the rich will always find a way. Money will always find a way. Uh, so education, and um, this of course applies well beyond China, on its own is not an effective tool for addressing inequality, including inequality in education. You can't simply address inequality in education through education policy. Uh, and I think this is what the Chinese government is finding and 
and they're not alone. But I, I mean, just, just to go on to the other point, which is the ideological sort of um, uh, agenda for education that the Xi regime has, well, this is highly nationalistic. Now, of course, nationalism in education content and policy is not new in China, but it's being ramped up uh, at the moment. And why is that? Well, I think it's, that's also related to the issue of inequality and to anxieties within the Communist Party about the stability uh, or the sustainability of um, the, the economic model uh, and, and um, essentially fears about party control. Uh, and not just party control, but, but anxieties on the part of uh, Xi Jinping and his supporters about their position uh, within um, the party, I think. Mm. Um, it is, it's, of course, Chinese education policymaking is, is very opaque. And so it's, it's very, very hard to sort of read the tea leaves and say exactly what is driving these policies. But, you know, generally speaking, if a, if a regime starts ramping up rhetoric to do with patriotism and nationalism, loyalty, then you conclude that they are worried about loyalty. Speaking about some of this inequality that has emerged since the reform and opening period uh, because of this elite system that was brought in, um, and then some of the attempts to address it that perhaps didn't really work, it makes me wonder if there might be lessons to learn from the Mao era where egalitarianism seems to have been the kind of polar opposite of, of the system that emerged. Well, this is one of the tragedies, I think, of uh, uh, modern and contemporary China, is that, um, I mean, many scholars uh, who've actually researched the Mao era, which I haven't, uh, or, or myself and my co-author, uh, Zhang Xiaodong, you know, we're not looking at the Mao era, but many scholars who have looked at that era have said, well, okay, I mean, the official view, if you like, or the orthodox view of the Mao era in China today is that educationally it was a disaster, particularly the cultural, well, not, not the entire Mao era, but the cultural revolution period. Whereas, for example, Suzanne Pepper in the book I mentioned earlier, who looked in detail at that era, and Han Dongping, who looked at the um, cultural revolution um, education uh, system as well, say, well, Actually, that era was quite successful in terms of um, expanding access to basic education. Uh, and and in, in some senses, the economic development of China in the post-Mao era has drawn on that success in not universalizing, but, but sort of new enough, uh, basic education. Um, but... You know, the, the, the sort of official view of um, the Mao era doesn't really acknowledge that achievement. Um, if you read, you know, official analyses or, or, or orthodox analyses of China's educational development during the reform and opening period, you would conclude that the universalization of basic education was, you know, pretty much entirely an achievement of the post-Mao um, uh, administration. Right. Uh, but that's not really the case. And as Pepper shows, access to basic, particularly uh, junior high school education uh, in rural areas actually retreated. It actually declined after the, um, reform. the advent of reform and opening. Right.
Um, and, and, and so a sort of yeah, a tragedy of this sort of extremism and the violence of the what 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 the sort of extremism and violence of the Mao era did, you know, that, that accompanied these reforms to basic education. And also, you know, to a large extent, the sort of trashing of higher education. What all of that did was to legitimize a reaction, you know, a swing of the pendulum to the other extreme in the post-Mao period. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, that's had the um, unfortunate social consequences in terms of, you know, the embedding of an extremely high level of inequality uh, that we see in China today, I think. What about looking forward? What, what, having looked and studied the last 40 years of educational policy in China from all different perspectives, the state perspective, but some more critical perspectives, what, what do you see happening in the years ahead? Well, as hard as that may be. I, I, I don't really want to say what I, what I see happening in, in terms of educational, you know, China's educational development. I think that's very hard to say. Uh, and it will depend to a large extent on what happens in China more generally, uh, what happens with Chinese society, what happens with Chinese politics. Um, but in terms of research on education in China, what I'd like to see is um, more um, in-depth study of the relationship between education and particular, particularly educational intensity and, um, for example, the, the nature of the labour market, uh, the um, uh, nature of social policy, the availability of welfare, um, aspects of society that, that educationalists don't usually study, but which I think are very, very important for determining um, uh, well, the intensity of, of uh, people's, uh, um, of, of competitiveness within the education system. Um, because uh, in a society like China today, where um, welfare provision is well, from the state, it still, despite reforms in recent years, remains very, very minimal, uh, and, and therefore um, so much depends on uh, your uh, sort of competitive success through education uh, in terms of accessing key high schools, accessing key universities, uh, you know, getting the best job and, and where you don't, because of the nature of the labour market uh, and the way in which qualifications are viewed, you don't really have a second chance usually in China. Uh, the nature of the labour market, I think, and the nature of the welfare system um, uh, have a lot to do with the intensity of the education system, which drives out space for critical thinking, which drives out space for um, you know, more liberal aspects of, um, uh, more, more liberal sort of modes of pedagogy, despite the fact that many educationalists in China and some policymakers um, you know, want to see these things. Um, and so uh, I think not just in China, but uh, in other societies, particularly in East Asia, I'd like to see more research that looks at the links between um, educational practices, educational reform, and the limits of educational reform, and um, labour market, social welfare, etc. Because what 
um, the argument you often see is that this educational intensity is a product of sort of culture. It's a product of Confucianism. And there may be certain truth in that. But I think actually uh, in East Asia, Confucianism or Confucian ideas are often invoked to legitimize an extremely intense educational system. And I think we need to look not just at culture. I mean, culture explains everything and it explains nothing. We need to look much more at social and economic uh, systems and practices to understand what's happening and what's not happening in education. Well, Edward Vickers, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. Thanks very much. Edward Vickers is a professor in the Department of Education at Kyushu University. His co-written book, Education and Society in Post-Mao China, will be published in May by Routledge. Fresh Ed is brought to you by the Globalization and Education Special Interest Group of the Comparative and International Education Society. Fresh Ed's assistant producers are Sherry Yang and Yuval Devere. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not CIES or the Globalization and Education SIG, which take no institutional positions. If you've liked what you've heard, please rate us on iTunes. It helps. Fresh Ed is made possible through listener donations. Please consider becoming a member of Fresh Ed by visiting freshedpodcast.com slash support. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll see you next week.